0: Derek Mann, you're on Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. I'm in studio with Channing Martinez, and we have two segments today for the show that we think you'll like. The first is uh, my effort to deconstruct the film Green Book, which I now call Black Green Book in the new book, because I'm working on a new screenplay I was asked, to. people were so furious about it that several people asked me to rewrite the film. So I'm going to read you some of the changes I made in the script later on. But more importantly, the problem with the film is that it totally degrades and caricatures an amazing man named Don Shirley, who we are going to talk about separate from the... uh, distortions of the film. The second part of the show is will be on with Frank Durrell, who does Addicted to War, to honor our dear fallen comrade, Blaise Bonpain, who died yesterday. Uh, I think everybody here knows who he is, just an amazing Office of the Americas. He's on has KPF, been KPFK forever. And one of the leading uh, both spiritual, religious and political anti-imperialists in in the world, and an amazing person with an amazing body of work. This There'll be many efforts to honor him, but I wanted to make sure that uh, Channing and I were able to also, and I wanted to thank KPFK for doing such a great party we had for Blaze on his 90th, on his 90th birthday, or to honor his 90th birthday. And thank God, as they say, we all saw him alive and well, And being himself, and that was only a few months ago. So that'll be part two, and it will be on, as I said, with Frank Durrell. So part one is, let me explain, first of all, for those of you who have not seen the film, the, uh, the short story is that a white driver named Tony the Lip gets a job driving a black man, Don Shirley, who's an accomplished musician, and they go through the South And it's allegedly a buddy film about racial equality. I assume most of you have seen it. I won't do any more plot. I'll just go through three parts. Part one is the anger of the black family and black critics about the film. And that'll explain a lot. Part two is gonna be a biography of Darren Shirley. I'll simply read it. I've done a lot of work on condensing an amazing human being. Uh, and part three is going to be my uh, first draft at the uh, alternate screenplay. And do we have a couple of his uh, songs to sing to play as well? Yes, we do. Okay, great. So um, we're going to end with some of his own music. So there's a lot of show, and uh, but with Blaze just dying yesterday, we wanted to make sure we also could at least begin the tribute to him. So le- let's go. Let's start with the first. So it said here. On August 28th, August 2018, Edward Shirley III sat in disbelief as he watched the screening of Peter Farrelly's new movie, Green Book, a simplistic racial harmony story sent the Jim Crow South. It was rather jarring Edward shared with Shadow and Act. Shadow and Act is a book that was written by Ralph Ellison, and now it's a A website of black film and and literary criticism. Very good, you should go on it. And Brooke Obie is the person, the columnist, whose work I'm also quoting. So in his first experience in seeing this on-screen portrayal of his uncle as a black man who is estranged from his family, estranged from the black community, and seemingly embarrassed by blackness, That's in itself amazing, just listen to what that says. Never mind that Dr. Shirley was active in the civil rights movement, friends with Dr. King, present for the march on Selma, none of which is in the film, and close friends with black musicians from Nina Simone to Duke Ellington and Sarah Vaughan, Dr. Shirley was also much part of his family's lives. Note that in the film, he's always portrayed alone alone in his apartment except with an Indian servant, and then alone in the back seat of the car with no real relationship to black people throughout the film. That's me speaking. To see him portrayed otherwise, that was very hurtful. Edwin said that's just 100% wrong. Dr. Shirley's last living brother, Dr. Maurice Shirley, 82, was furious when he heard of the depiction of his brother in the film, he had much harder much harsher criticism of it, calling it a symphony of lies. So that's when every time you hear a Green Book, just say, a symphony of lies. As one example, Maurice mentions the moment in the film where Ali's character says he has a brother but didn't know his whereabouts, as they hadn't been in contact for some time. Now, how could a white author, this is me now, write a script about a man and saying he didn't know where his brother was and they were strange when he had three brothers and they were on very good terms. Dr. Shirley's last living brother, uh, I'm sorry, at that point in 1962 when the events of the film supposedly take place, he had three living brothers with whom he was always in contact, Maurice said, speaking of himself and his and, his and Dr. Shirley's other two brothers, Dr. Edwin Shirley and Dr. Calvin Hilton Shirley, Eric speaking, who are also doctors of medicine. One of the things Donald used to remind me in his later years was he was literally raised me, Maurice said. Their mother died when Donald was nine years old and Maurice was just two days old. So Donald, the closest brother of age to Maurice, took care of him growing up and remained close to him until Dr. Shirley's death. There wasn't a month where I didn't have a phone call conversation with Donald Maurice said. So here's a man who raised his his brother because his mother died when he was nine and the boy was born when he was nine. And in the film, the white filmmaker says he doesn't have a relationship with his brother. It's disgusting. Now, the reality, Dr. Maurice Shirley, who is Shirley's... uh, I'm sorry, let's see this. Here's another one. Uh, Oh, no, this is important. He says, he refuses to see the film. It's full of lies. He said, he also said, unlike in the film, he was not estranged from his family, the black community. He said, Dr. Shirley had definitely eaten fried chicken before, before meeting Tony Lepp. We'll get to the fried chicken scene soon. Now, they also got a call from a Carol Shirley Kimball. She said, I'm the niece of Don Shirley, supposedly the subject in the movie Green Book. There was no due diligence done to afford my family and my deceased uncle the respect of properly representing him, his legacy, his worth, and the excellence in which he operated and the excellence in which he lived. It's once again a depiction of a white man's version of a black man's life. My uncle was an incredibly proud man, an incredibly accomplished man, as are the majority of people in my family, to depict him as less than that. To pick him and take away from him and make the story about the hero of a white man for this incredibly accomplished black man is insulting at best. Brooke Obie who wrote the review Green Book as a poorly titled white savior film, went on to say, first, that she gave the film her first ever zero star review. Zero stars, not one star, you get it. I want people to understand the rage that this represents. Behind all this very even restrained language is just a level of hurt and rage that's almost inexpressible, but I'm trying to help. Brooke Obi says, the main issues for me with Green Book is that it centers a white man's experience in what should have been according to the title of Black Story. It misrepresents the Negro motorist Green Book, that is to say the Green Book was a book for black people about where to go and where to avoid in the South under segregation. And it misrepresents Dr. Shirley. So whether audience would enjoy the film, I repeat, whether you would enjoy the film, mainly white people, should be secondary to questions of whether this film harms Dr. Shirley's legacy, whether it harms his living family members, and whether it harms black people as a whole. She continued, I think, to consistently see our stories and our black icons filtered through the lens of a racist white person like Tony Lepp does nothing to advance the understandings of black history and only serves to perpetuate white supremacy. I just want you to think and sit with that because I watched the film with, I must admit, and I'm one of the most militant film haters from the minute I see anything... I was seduced by part of it. I love Maheshullah Ali. I like also, um, uh, I remember his name, Mordo Vigginson. But you know, there, were, there was enough sort of endearing stuff that you say, all right, it's not that bad, it's not that bad, and then all of a sudden, I was really overcome by a sense of being duped and also a sense of rage at myself even for allowing to be manipulated. So that's phase one the anger and the hurt to the family and to legacy. Now, let's listen to who this man really is. And for those of you who have seen Green Book, ask yourself, is there any real relationship between the person you're gonna hear about and, and even Mahershala Ali's character? And I am critical also of that actor for not being more critical of the part that he took, by the way. So now we're gonna get to Don Shirley's biography. Pianist, composer, 1927, 2013. Donald Walbridge Shirley was born on January 29 1927 in Pensacola, Florida, to Jamaican immigrants. His father, Edwin, was an Episcopal minister, and his mother, Stella, was a teacher. Shirley sure, first showed an interest in piano at two and a half years old, and by five, he was performing on the organ at church. At nine, around the time his mother died, Choi traveled to the Soviet Union to study theory at the Leningrad Conservatory of Music. Now, I'm just gonna take a minute on this. This is 1936. The Russian Revolution is not even 20 years old. It's still suffering tremendous poverty surrounded by every capitalist country. It's the only socialist country in the world. And they already, in 19 years, figured out that a black genius deserves to go to the Leningrad Conservatory of Music when a black man could not even go to any conservatory of music in the United States. And you wonder why black people love the Soviet Union, and you wonder why I love the Soviet Union. I really need you to take a look at this history of how much the Soviet Union has been the friend of black people, and our own government has been the enemy of black people. And for those of you who are anti-communist, I would say you're also racists. Now, he later received lessons in advanced composition from Cornell Bernier and Dr. Thaddeus Jones at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. In June 1945, at age 18, Schurie made his concert debut at the Boston Pops. Playing Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto No. 1 in B-flat, the London Philharmonic Orchestra performed his first major composition the following year. This is 19. And in 49, he received an invite from the Haitian government to play at the Exposition Internationale de Bicentenaire de Port-au-Prince. Despite his training, Shirley in his 20s was dissuaded from pursuing a career as a classical pianist by impresario Saul Jurok, who said the country wasn't ready to accept a black man in that arena. Shirley subsequently developed his own genre, melding his influence in blues, spiritual, show tunes, and popular music to deliver compositions that were both familiar and original to audiences. His imagination and deft touch drew praise from musical luminaries like Igor Stravinsky, who cited Shirley's virtuoso as worthy of the gods, and Duke Ellington, who said he would give up his bench at the piano to let Shirley take the reins. Now, in Green Book, you know that Don Shirley must be somebody. He lives up, you see him living up on top of uh, Carnegie Hall, with a, obviously an enormous apartment. He's obviously wealthy. Uh, he's obviously accomplished. But how come the film made no effort to explain the full extent of who he was? Because you get a sense that, yeah, I guess he's a pretty good piano player. no. He's a virtuoso he's famous he's played with the Boston Pops there was nothing preventing that being put in the script unless you are a white racist who wanted to denigrate this man to build up of all things your uncle Tony the Lip, your your father of all things so there's a there's a maliciousness to the degradation of Don Shirley to in some way uh, restrict the full racism of Tony the Lip in the film, make it like a kind of cute racism, as if there can be such a thing. Starting with tonal expressions in 1955, Shoy began recording his unique versions of popular favorites like Blue Moon, Lullaby of Birdland, and Love for Sale. He soon embarked on a long-time collaboration with bassist Ken Fricker and cellist Yuri Tot, who frequently joined him in the studio and on stage as the Don Shirley Trio. And I found this quote from some other New York Times. I wanted to bring this in because it's very important. It says, this is Shirley speaking, I introduced the contrapuntal aspect of music into popular music This is something that no jazz musician could do or ever thought of doing, he once told the New York Times. So I'm interested in knowing more about essentially contrapunto, obviously counterpoint. I don't understand the musical theory, but the point is he had a musical theory, and he was trained in musical theory. The trio enjoyed a highlight with their self-titled 1961 album, which included the top 40 hit Waterboy. Is Waterboy one of the ones that we have? Yes. Okay. Okay. Ricky, could we play Waterboy after, as soon as I finish the biography? But before I go into my screenplay, we'll play Waterboy. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Kenny. Um, and continue recording together through 1972's The Don Shirley Point of View. Also in 1955, Shirley made his Carnegie Hall debut with Ellington in the Symphony of the Air Orchestra. He went on to perform at the Detroit Symphony, Chicago Symphony, and the Cleveland Orchestra over the years, along the way, appearing in such prestigious venues as Milan's La Scala Opera House, New York M- Metropolitan Opera House. Now, obviously, if you're going to make a film about Don Shirley, not about a white racist, then you'd have all these flashback scenes to concerts. You'd have Stravinsky saying he's a genius. Well, you wouldn't want to see him with Duke Ellington. I mean, Carter, you know, this is rather shocking that there's just no context allowed for him. You know, just a man yeah. sitting in, in his apartment waiting to get a bodyguard. Following the death of his good friend Ellington in 1974, Shirley composed Defermento, Defermento, for Duke by Dawn*. It's very moving. Other ambitious creations included his variations on the story of Orpheus in The Underworld, a tone poem based on James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake and works for piano, cello, and string. Um, Shirley, who married once and divorced, never had children. Shirley wasn't the only member of his family to achieve professional success. His closest brothers Calvin and Edward became doctors, while the latter also developed a close friendship with Martin Luther King. Shirley also reportedly spoke eight languages fluently and was a talented painter. Forced to curtail his output after, after developing tendinitis in his right hand in the 1970s, very unfortunate, Shirley disappeared from the public eye, but by the end of the decade, in 1982 Times article that the musician was attempting a comeback and played regularly alongside his longtime partners in Manhattan's Greenwich Village, uh, Shirley died from complications of heart disease at his home in New York City above Carnegie Hall when he was 86 years old, and Let's Hear Water Boy" by Don Shirley. It's about his music, about the classical and soul and jazz all in one. You just heard one. I feel like I want to do two more shows about this. But I'm going to move because I want to uh, get to my screenplay and make sure we have time to talk about Blaze. So I've been working on uh, an alternate screenplay. I'm calling it Black Green, The Black Green Book. Uh, so the IMDb says a working-class Italian-American bouncer... Note that starts with the white guy. Becomes the driver of an African-American classical pianist on a tour of venues throughout the 1960s American South. Director, Peter Farrelly. Writers, Nick Vallelonga, who is the son of Tony the Lip Vallelonga. And the stars, Vigo Mortensen, Mahershalay Ali, and Linda Cardellini. All right, so now in the first scene of the actual film, you see Tony Lip and his wife, Dolores, and she's being friendly to two black workmen. She gives them a glass of water. After they leave Tony, disgusted by black people drinking at the whites-only water fountain in his Bronx Italian apartment, takes the glasses and puts them in the garbage can, believing they are unredeemingly black. Dolores looks at in the garbage, sees the two glasses, puts them back in the sink, giving Tony a critical glance as... Oh, my sweet, misguided, racist husband. So, in the rewrite, in my screenplay, it goes as follows. Dolores is wearing a White Folks for Black Liberation t-shirt. She's talking to the black workers. What can we do to smash this racist white settler state? The first black man says, well, the first thing is get out of this racist household, this racist marriage. These folks are gangsters, and they might as well be a friend to the Klan in the North chapter. Second brother says, join a women's liberation group, get a divorce, join the movement. After they leave, she discovers the glasses. She goes to Tony. She smashes the glasses on the floor and says, Tony, you racist pig. Pick up the broken glass, then look in a broken mirror to see a distorted white self-image. I'm leaving you until you go to RA. That's racist anonymous. I still love you. But you have to change and switch sides in the Civil War. Now, I have an idea. Why don't you quit the COPA, go to work for a black man, be humble, drive the damn car, wash his clothes, then go out as a sharecropper and see what it's like to live under Jim Crow. Tony says, hey, honey, you are so right. Do you know of any famous black pianists who want to go to the South and need that white driver and a bodyguard to protect them from racist mobs? She says, honey... Do I look like Craigslist? Go on the Strategy Center website, thestrategycenter.org. Take some initiative and you figure it out. I'll wait for you. But don't go home for a long time, like a 12 months, which is the real time he spent with Don Shirley, not the two months. All right, so in scene two, in the original, Tony meets Don Shirley. He's elegant. He does ask Tony to be his driver. I need to go back to re the scene as I remember it. It wasn't bad, but given the film, I'd probably be more critical. And I'm not signing off on the original. But in my rewrite, uh, he meets Don. Uh, he meets Don Shirley, and Shirley says, "Tony, have you ever studied Chopin and Bach?" Tony says, "You mean Chopin vodka and Bert Bacharach? He says, "No, Tony. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Johann Sebastian Bach." Tony, oh my God, my racism has prevented me from becoming a fully developed human being. How could I have been so blind? Will you teach me, O oh master? Don Shirley, of course, comrade. When I was studying at the Leningrad Conservatory of Music in the Soviet Union when I was nine, in 1936, I learned what I had already experienced in the racist US, that black people in the US were an oppressed nation with the right of self-determination. There I met Harry Haywood, a black communist who had just finished on the Comintern thesis on the Afro-American national question. I also met the great Paul Robeson, the most gifted revolutionary artist of all time. They encouraged me to build my craft, to excel both technically and politically. At the same time, Mao Tung encouraged me to be read and expert. Today, as we travel through the South, I want to support the civil rights movement, to play at historically black colleges and universities, and to raise the political and cultural awareness of my people. Tony, count me in, comrade. Oh, I'm learning so much. I can't wait to write to my wife, but oh, yeah, I forgot I can't write. Dr. Shirley, you see, Tony, the racism of the white settler state has allowed you to feel good about your ignorance. Your participation in its genocidal policies has implicated you in its fundamental inhumanity. Ironically, if you decide to devote your life to the Black and Third World Revolution, you will find your own humanity, your own voice, and yes, your own voice and your own literacy. Now, the next scene is in the car. In the original, Tony takes them to Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, Shoei initially resists, but after Tony pushes him on the back seat, Shoei tries it and is hooked by its greasy goodness. When he asks, what do I do with the bones? Tony shows him how to throw them onto the highway to litter the environment. Shoei says, thank you, white man, for helping me overcome my societally constructed inhibitions. This is the first time I've ever eaten fried chicken. You sure have a good sense of rhythm. Thank you for helping me loosen up. Now, in the rewrite, the scene is as follows. Tony says, hey, let's stop at KFC to get a big, bucky, or greasy type. Don Shoy says, Tony, this is a comedy tragedy of racist errors. At first, Kentucky Colonel is a symbol of the plantation. Now, think about it, Tony. Who would want to look like that fat cracker with a good humor man's outfit on, pale white skin, big belly, all white outfit? Let me tell you a secret. Black folks dreamed up the colonel's secret recipe to kill white folks. You know, it's very dangerous to kill white folks directly. So we figured if we put some appetite enhancers and put a big white cracker on the label, the white folks will go to Colonel Sanders, eat that greasy as hell chicken with their cardboard mashed potatoes and heart attack and gravy. We hope they drop dead on the spot. If not, we figure over the years, if the heart attack don't get them, the stroke from high blood pressure will. Now, we do feel bad that some black folks also eat there. But with a picture of a cracker on the window, we figured would scare them all off. The least they could all do is go to Popeye's. But Dr. Shirley continues. So, Tony, go read the Green Book. Let's go to Kunta Quinte's Chicken Shack. There, the chicken is beautifully done, crisp and juicy. Not with those plastic potatoes, but wonderful greens, mac and cheese, spicy green beans, and cornbread. And no, we will eat at a table with utensils, wipe our hands, carefully put away our plates, thank the owners, leave a generous tip, and move on. Look at you, Tony. The white settler state has made you obese, wolfing down your food. With no manners or civility, there's nothing attractive about being a slob, Tony. Tony goes, wow, this is like going to college. Thank you, old great black teacher, for civilizing me. I can't wait to write to Dolores. Oh, I forgot, I still can't write. Scene three. In the film, disgustingly, it's asserted with no possible proof that Don Shirley was arrested for homosexual activity. In the gross book, it shows a scene with Don Shirley naked in a cell with a white man ostensibly his lover or pick up at the time. The scene is sick in so many levels. First, there is no proof that this ever happened, just as a little proof throughout the film. The filmmakers chose to degrade Shirley, making his alleged homosexuality criminal, assuming he would choose a white gay man, and asserting his sexual identity when it was known that while it was assumed he was gay in his later years by many of his friends, he never chose to openly identify that way. It's disgraceful that a filmmaker, making a film, of course, about his brother, not a black man, would take the artistic license to create a scene so degrading of course, with Tony the Lip coming in, first to bail him out, then to bribe the police in one of his alleged great talking scams, to get them to buy a suit that Don Shirley was denied. And why were a black man and a white man in the same cell in the segregated South? That wouldn't be logical. So then Tony gets to say, hey, don't worry about it. At the Cope I've seen everything, ostensibly a progressive view of gay rights from a neo-mafioso. In my film, there is no rewrite. There is no such scene whatsoever. And there should never have been a theme, a scene like that in Green Book. Then the the uh, finale is uh, Dr. Shirley is asked, and this is now back to Green Book, if he has any family. He says his parents have died, and he has no relationship with his brother from whom he's estranged. Tony says something like, you know, sometimes you have to forgive, to heal, to reconnect. It's a kind scene. In the last scene of the film, Dr. Shirley goes back to a spacious loft on top of Carnegie Hall alone. Tony goes back to his racist family to celebrate Christmas. Then in the film, there's a knock on the door. There is a lonely Dr. Shirley with a bottle of wine in hand, asking if he was welcome. There's a pause. And then in a moment of white Christian charity, the family says, Of course, hey, let's get this man a plate. And we're all relieved. And Dolores hugs Dr. Shirley and says, thank you for helping Tony write those beautiful letters. In the film, she's a kind, decent white person. And the hug at the end did make me cry, as it was supposed to. After which, of course, I got angry and was duped again. So here's my rewrite. Tony comes home to see Dolores at Christmas. He's humbled and more at peace. He says, you know... I have to reconstruct my life. I don't want to go back to the COPA where I regress and degenerate. I want to volunteer at a homeless shelter and join the NACP. Dolores says, that's great, honey, but check out CORE and SNCC. They're a lot more militant and they need your help. Then Tony says, you know, honey, uh, now that I have my first class, first black teacher, I think I've got to keep going. Maybe I can be a white friend of a white wife who's in white folks for black liberation. He tells the rest of the family, I'm so happy to be home. And he puts on a Paul Robeson record, at which point they make a racist response. He says, hey, all of you, get out of here. I didn't want to be at a Klan meeting I go back down south. This is New York. If you don't love Paul Robeson, go have your own Christmas party and play Christmas music in German. Dolores hugs Tony and says, Tony, you've come such a long way. Let's enjoy the music, go to bed, and read the origins of The Family, Property, Private Property in the State by Frederick Engels. They kiss as the music of Ropeson is turned up. Then in the final scene, Dr. Shirley goes to meet his brothers, his younger brother, Maurice Shirley, who he helped to raise, and his other two brothers, Dr. Edward Shirley and Dr. Calvin Hilton Shirley. Hello, brother, they welcome him. Maurice says, so glad to see you, Don. You know, I thank you every day for taking care of me when Mom died. Turning to Edwin, Calvin, and back to Don, he says, how did I end up with three brothers and all of them are doctors? They laugh and embrace. Cut to the end. everybody. This is Eric Mann. You're back on Voices from the Front Lines with Eric Mann, Channing Martinez, and Ricky on Controls. And we're now here with uh, Frank Durrell. Uh, he's uh, a great uh, everything. We get his uh, Addicted to War emails pretty much every day. And it's one of the ones I always read because he's he's also worked with S. Brian Wilson He's just a tremendous peace activist, but today he's also a very close friend of our close friend, and it seems like everybody's close friend, Blaise Bonpain. Frank, thanks for being on Voices from the Frontlines.
1: Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. And Blaise Bonpain presente.
0: Presente, absolutely. Uh, how are you feeling, and what are you thinking?
1: Well, Blaise was such a great person in every way, Eric, and I know Probably everybody listening knows that. They don't need to hear me say it, but it was so true. He wasn't just a great activist and a great truth-teller beyond KBFK all these years, you know, putting the truth out there to us. He was also, and I know you knew him, a wonderful, kind, loving man who loved people and loved his family. And just, just, uh, you know, as my friend Patricia Todd said, who went to Peru with Blaze when they visited Amy... um, Lori Berenson in prison oh God, years yeah. ago with Amy Goodman she said at, at lunch uh, a few months ago Blaze is our own Howard Zinn <laughs> I said yes mm-hmm. you, you know it's, it's, that's who Blaze was he is, he will live in the heart of so many people and
0: um, well that's an interesting analogy Howard Zinn was a good friend of mine and, and they both were very handsome they yeah. both were very charming kind of charming revolutionaries you know what I mean yeah. they had a understated revolution. I mean their content was so strong that they could almost chose to uh, not mediate it, but uh, elongated and make it more melodic. Uh, he was uh, a priest. Uh, he has a phenomenal critique of the role of the church. Uh, f- Why don't you tell us more about some of his actual work in the third world? Uh, for those of us who don't know who he is, I'm just going to say you should, so we're not going to give you any okay. you'll, you'll, you'll pay attention, and you'll get it, and you can cool. Google him. He's an amazing man. Go ahead, Frank.
1: Blaze became a Maryknoll priest, uh, and, and his parents didn't want him to, but he and his father was a judge, but he did it anyway, and he was sent to uh, Guatemala um, in, in the 50s, uh, 60s, and there was all this horror going on down there, you know, U.S. Right. foreign policy and the genocide happening in Guatemala. And Blaze got involved, working with people that were affected by this. And he started speaking out and all this. And he was eventually thrown out of the, uh, the country, not just by the Guatemalan government, but by the Mary Knowles himself and the U.S., who, who didn't want him talking about all this. You know, I visited Blaze in the hospital uh, back in January and he was telling me we talked for 2 hours he was telling me all this in such detail he remembered names and all these things and anyway he got out and he went around and then he went to congress and testified about all this and then eventually he became a um a professor and uh uh and then he you know he met uh Teresa who had been a Mary Knoll nun um I think in Chile, I'm not sure, but anyway, they got married and they started doing the. They worked with Chuy Chavez, and then they started the Office of Americas uh, like three years ago or something. And their first grant was given to them by Martin Sheen. And I first heard about Blaze on uh, maybe almost 40 years ago on KPFK. Uh, I had a job as a driver for USC, and I just and I discovered KPFK. and there was Blaze every week live teaching me. He was he, he was my mentor, and I'm sure for probably thousands and thousands of people and blaze really laid it out there about what our country does and um, you know just uh, you were at the uh, party we had for him and uh, Ki put out for him in November it was great all the people all the great things everybody was saying about him and and so he'll live forever in our in our with our in our memory and what he's taught us and and with the group the office of the Americas and anyway
0: what well, you know, yeah, that's a good love, beginning. He's like
1: a brother, like a father, <laughs> and he was my mentor. And for so many, he, and so many of the people, uh, Eric, I met in the movement. I met through Blaze and Teresa. I can never say really Blaze's name without mentioning Teresa as well. You know, the, the two of them did so much. I always, whenever I introduced them, I always called them the heart and soul, the peace and peace and justice movement here in this area and all across the country.
0: And I didn't want to call Teresa for this show. I just wanted to... You know, let her deal with things but Teresa Bon is another force of nature they were quite a couple and uh, I often had more direct dealings with Teresa actually on a lot of direct movement activities and she would call about if she you know if they wanted help she'd offer me the person to call Um, you know I was in, in the thing I wrote you asked me to write something about Blaze and the thing I was concerned about is that the uh When I was brought into the movement in, you know, 62, 63, 64, the growing anti-imperialist, anti-colonial perspective was led by blacks, led by people in the third world, was raising the fundamental question of the United States as the greatest danger in the world, you know? And uh, that blaze came out of that anti-imperialist tradition. As you said, he went to Guatemala, he saw, one of the most brutal genocides initiated by the United States um, after there had been a democratic election in Guatemala that was overthrown. And uh, I don't see today that same level of fierce anti-imperialism. I see too many of the Bernie Sanders people, too many of the uh, people in virtually every field not fully putting the U.S. empire at the center Mm -hmm. of their own strategy and their own if I may say, uh, hatred and disgust with what our government does right now in Venezuela is another example of an embattled country that's trying to build its own government and the United States is actively subverting it. So, Blaise's voice was so important in that. And, um, you know, I'm so glad, by the way, some of you, I think you and I were talking about it, and I said, are there still tickets? And you said, I think so, but don't worry, if not, we'll there'll be another party. And I went, Uh uh, no. I'm not not missing the next this one. Right. So we went to that one and Channing and I went. And we want to thank KPFK for playing such an active role in that wonderful celebration of his life. Yeah. Uh tell me about his son. His son got up and sang, right? Miss- Blaze Martin.
1: Yeah. Blaze Martin sang right. the song that that Blaze always played on his radio show um, at the beginning of the show. Fear, fearing fear, fearing fear, and bad. I told him after it was better that it was it was better life than it was on <laughs> the show. And 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 um, he's a teacher. Uh, I think he teaches high school, I believe. And his daughter Colleen is a doctor, and um, they, luckily she lives right next door behind. Blaze and Teresa, so she, can, you know, she's right there for them.
0: That's great. If you want to talk to us, if you only, if it's okay, if you know Blaze Bonpain otherwise, I just want to stay with Frank. You can call eight one eight nine eight five five seven three five. And if you're already familiar with his work and wanted to say something. Is it okay, Ricky? We'll do the phones just for a few minutes. Oh, sure. 818-985-5735. Any people that want to talk about firsthand experiences with Blaze, something they read, a show they listened to? Channing, yes. Sure. So there's just one comment from Facebook. Okay. Uh, uh, it says, this video is great. So much love for Blaze Bonpain from Leanne Hurst. Oh, that's nice. Well, well from Leanne Hurst, um, my wife. Uh, Leanne always, you know, uh, uh, on Sunday, Leanne goes to her mom, right? And I wor- work on writing. So she's always saying, did you listen? Are you turning on Blaze? Are you turning on Blaze? I said, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I'll turn it on. So she would always listen to him on the drive to our mom's. And uh, what an important figure, huh? What a just... Uh, giant of a man in a lot of ways and uh, t- I, I, tell us I, more stuff you know more tell us more well, stuff Eight one eight nine eight five five seven three five.
1: he was such a strong voice uh, speaking out against all injustice but per- in particular US foreign policy and uh, the horrors of our country has committed and and so he enlightened me and so many others about all these things and he never let up on it and yet on the same hand he was such a kind loving man you know and so it was, it's a good – and he was so educated. He got a Ph.D. and he taught all over. But he kept he, – he was telling me this recently that he had a lot of different do- jobs teaching because they always let him go because they couldn't <laughs> – nowhere could tolerate the truth he told. <laughs> he well, was even let go by Reagan. I think when Blaze was teaching at UCLA and Reagan passed something and they let Blaze go and uh, Angela Davis and some others go, so Blaze – Hung out with some really great company,
0: you know. <laughs> I mean, one thing I was just <laughs> thinking about is that we should be very happy about is that in a way, where uh, there's been a lot of great work done in, in support of people of El Salvador and the people of Nicaragua, and to the point of helping those countries have their revolution, you had, Ed Asner as a very outspoken, you had Martin Sheehan yes. as, an, uh, as you had... Uh, and uh, Arison Agnos playing a very active role. And Blaze, so it's important for our listeners to understand that uh, these were not anti-imperialist commentators. They were anti-imperialist organizers. They built movements. They went back to the third world. They helped people to, to any degree that we weakened the U.S. hand against El Salvador and Nicaragua. There's a lot of people, there was Cispus, of course, there were, you know, so many others who did a great, great job. So it's important to understand that that constellation of people over the last 30 years actually was able to shape and help third world history.
1: Yep. And all those people you mentioned, Ed Asner, Martin Sheen, and Eris and who you were very close with, who just died last year. Right. And many others, Blaze is really good friends with all these people. And I have to throw in Don White.
0: Oh, absolutely, Don, Don White. Presente.
1: Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> who worked with Blaze, and Teresa and so many. I mean, I could if I, I could spend the rest of the show naming people who they work with. Uh, it was just so many. And they introduced me to so many people uh, in the movement, including um, Father Roy Bourgeois and, and um, Kathy Kelly and Ramsey Clark and... Medea Benjamin, the list goes on and on. Yeah, and it also Reverend, includes... Reverend Lawson and so many others.
0: It also it, includes Maria Guardado, who was, yes, uh, Maria Guardado, who was with the Strategy Center for 20 years and also recently died. Right. She was from El Salvador. She was tortured. Yeah. She came to the United States uh, raped and tortured by the CIA in El Salvador. She was uh, friendly with Archbishop Romero, who was murdered... And uh, she was very friendly with the Communist Party, and she went through a horrible or uh, a uh, uh, very brave uh, rehabilitation around the trauma of what had happened yeah. to her. And she then became very active with the Bus Riders Union, with the Strategy okay. Center. Maria and was everywhere. Maria was everywhere. At
1: every protest you ever go, there was Maria. <laughs> she was a force, a force of nature. And... Um, Yeah, there's so many.
0: Yeah, Maria, Maria, there's a great movie made about her. Yeah, I know, 818-985-5735. If you'd like to speak in praise of the beloved Blaise Bonpain, 818 985 5735 Yeah, and the movie about uh, Maria Guardada is a quote from me saying she must have the best press agent because in every picture of a protest, (laughs) there's Maria with a sign saying, CIA, down with the CIA. It could be on uh, vegan activity, it could be on buses, it could be on anything, and there's Maria yep. taking on the CIA. Tell us more about Blaze, and your, tell us about your relationship with
1: Blaze. Well, Blaise. like I said, I discovered yeah. Blaze on KPFK. I had a job at USC as a driver. Never went to college, Eric. And it just was my luck to discover KPFK, and uh, the first person I heard that got me involved with all this U.S. foreign policy stuff was Noam Chomsky. Talking about U.S. supported death squads in El Salvador, and after that, I was listening all the time. And the person I was hearing live every week was Blaze, and you know he literally was teaching me, you know, and so many everybody who listened to him about all these things going on that our country was doing. And I want to say that uh, him and Teresa um, took delegations to Nicaragua between 1983 and 1989, anywhere from six to twelve. Delegations of people from this country to see what was happening in Nicaragua, they worked uh, directly with Ortega and his wife and yeah. they, they always they went separately they never went together because in case anything ever happened but right. but and you know Blaze went to Iraq and during the first Iraq war at the beginning and he just he's just did so much and, and and once again, the two of them together they were a team and they just and though they had so many great events over the years and honored so many great people and Brian Wilson and so many others. And
0: Did you have a specific conversation with Blaze one-on-one that you remember?
1: Well, this yes. Of all the times I spent with him and all the talks I've had with him, when I went in early January, and he was at the Kaiser Hospital, and I went on a Saturday night, and Teresa was there, and then she left. And so it was just me and Blaze, and we talked for two hours. And I was just amazed because he was. I was asking him more information about what happened in Guatemala and the whole deal, and he was telling me all these things I couldn't even repeat them now. But uh, what happened to him there? And he was naming names, and and then he told me all what happened to him after when they forced him out, and he they sent him to Hawaii, the Marianas, and they wouldn't let him speak. And he decided, oh, I'm not going to do this anymore, you know. And he and he went and spoke at Congress, and he spoke all over the country, and he's just he's just a force for truth. Blaze has always been. And but the other thing it, 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 and I at to maybe you remember this at the party we had for blaze uh k b f k put on for blaze in november um and his birthday is is april twenty fourth so right he, he would have been ninety, but anyway, mm-hmm. I've never all the people that got up and spoke, and everybody at k b f k Margaret Prescott and Alan Minsky, and of course Mimi Kennedy and jim Lafferty and and so many others um Christine Bladso got up and said one word that she thought of. Whenever she saw Blaze in the studio, I have to get emotional now. But she said kindness, because he was a man that spoke so much truth. But he was a kind human being, good to people. But he never really blasted individuals, Eric, you know, even bad people. He talked more about what our country did, our system had done. And, and he was so clear. He was so knowledgeable and educated on all these
0: issues. Hold on, Frank. We have a call. Patricia, uh, let's have her on. Hi, Patricia. How you doing? You're on Voices Hi, for funny. the Frontlines.
2: Wonderful. This is Patricia Todd calling from Wrightwood. And hi, Patricia. When I first heard Mm -hmm. hi Frank, when I first heard um, Blaze speak, I think it was around 1982, 83 in the Unitarian Church. um, Two things really stuck out. One, and you know, I could get choked up too, but he would say, "Get on the side of the oppressed," and I thought that was such a good, just like slogan or you know, way to remember what's you know pretty much always the best thing to do
0: get on the um, side of the oppressed
2: get on the side of the oppressed and the other yeah the other thing he he would say is, talk about what he called the myth of powerlessness which is just another concept that i have always carried so to instead of like when say you're out at a corner vigil or something against the war war in iraq or in afghanistan you're holding up a sign um don't think even though people might you know dismiss you or yell out get a job or you know whatever (laughs) that you are there making a statement and you count so those were just two of the many concepts that um, I'll never forget from blaze and also like frank said it's a kind terrific person smart as anything patricia uh, just real quickly
0: uh, Uh, and i'm gonna have to say this will be the patricia thank you for calling in we only have one more minute so i'm gonna tie up is that okay everybody that's right. uh thanks everybody I mean I, I want to sort of end with saying this that get on the side of the oppressed is the answer to everything uh, for all the white people who are just going through all this effort to think they could be woke and going through consciousness just get on the side of the oppressed for people that are of color that are professional that are upwardly mobile and have every right to be upwardly mobile but still get on the side of the oppressed for all those people that have a lot of good ideas, but don't do enough, get on the side of the oppressed, because the rest will take care of itself. Strategy and tactics, which are necessary, forms of organization, which are necessary, cannot be figured out if you don't get on the side of the oppressed. So that was very helpful to tell us that, Patricia, and we will uh, elevate that, since it's that our theory as well.
1: Yeah, that's a great haiku, what you just uh, said.
0: <laughs> So, uh, that's why we were on the side of Don Shirley today, and that's why we're on the side of Blaise Bonpain. Thank you, Ricky, you do a really good job with us. Thanks, Channing. Uh, I'm so happy to have gone on the journey to get to know Don Shirley, because the main thing I felt about the film is, uh, who is this man? There's nothing in this film that's going to let me understand, but I know there's a greatness in there somewhere, and I spent a a lot of time trying to learn about it. Thanks so much for being on Voices from the Frontlines. We'll see you next Tuesday. On behalf of Channing Martinez and myself, all power to the people.